Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years – the first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while, so now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 18th episode of Risk ever to be heard. It premiered in June of 2010, and it's called Different. Take a chance, change. do it now. So say the elemental wizard there. We'll be hearing more from him later. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is One James One behind me. And today we call the subject of our stories different. All the guests today have a unique perspective on the events they'll guide us through. First up is the lovely thespian Samara Doucette. And, of course, her vagina. This is called Finally. 
So I never got the awkward sex talk growing up. Instead, I got a book lying on my bed when I came home from middle school entitled What's Happening to My Body Book for Girls. I leafed through the book pretty quickly and I came across some diagrams about what pubic hair was supposed to look like when it grew in and I was so embarrassed so I threw it on the shelf next to the Island of the Blue Dolphins and a couple of Shel Silverstein anthologies. If the book talked about masturbation and the female orgasm, I definitely missed that chapter. I was 18 when I lost my V-card, and I started to embark on the journey of having a sexually active life. I enjoyed sex. I thought it was pretty great, and nothing was horrifically wrong with it, and it felt good, so... I thought that I pretty much had a normal sex life. But I always had this sneaking suspicion in the back of my mind that I was missing out on something. I mean, it felt great, but it didn't feel amazing. And people would always talk about this big finish and how fantastic it was and life-changing it should feel. And I just wasn't sure I was feeling that. So I was really unsure of whether or not I actually was having an orgasm. So I started to become obsessed with what was happening to me. I consulted all sorts of reliable sources, Cosmo, WebMD, my friend Tara in college. She loved talking about sex. So I went to her one day and I said, okay, Tara, what what does it feel like to have an orgasm? And she said that it felt like thousands of tiny little explosions all over her body. I thought about it for a minute and I was like, yeah, I don't think I felt that. I went back and forth convincing myself that I had actually had an orgasm because how could I possibly be having this much sex and not actually climaxing? I started analyzing everything that was happening in the bedroom. I would bring all those buzzwords that I learned about orgasms to the front of my mind, climax and contractions and multiple and explosions. And I would try really hard to feel all of these things. And I would get really into sex. I'd be like, this is so passionate and it's feeling really great and it's going to happen. But then I was still always completely unsure and I would go back into this spiral of doubt. So I resolved that I must be having orgasms. They must just feel different for different people and that I was going to progress through the rest of my life feeling like a normal person. Until my late 20s, that's when it was brought to my attention that I was a little bit more naive than I originally thought. I decided to have sex with a really good guy friend of mine, and when we finished having sex, he asked me if I came. Now, since we were really, really close, I decided I would give him the honest answer. And I said, you know what? I hate when guys ask me, did you come? I mean, can't you tell? Like, you're down there. Doesn't it get more wet or something? And he was like, um, wait, you can't tell when you've had an orgasm. And I was like, no, I'm not talking about having an orgasm. I'm talking about, did I squirt something out of my body? I mean, can't you tell? Okay, so yes. The reality is, for the last 10 years that I've been having sex, I thought when guys asked me, did you come? They were asking me if I'd had a female ejaculation, not if I'd actually climaxed. And then I realized something really needed to change. The only last resort that I could think of was to get a vibrator. This was kind of terrifying to me. I'd heard about this mysterious, wonderful device, but in my mind, it was completely dirty and completely unnecessary. But apparently, maybe it was a little necessary at this point. So I started the research. Was I going to get a dildo? Was I going to get a pocket rocket? The bullet, the clitty spinner, the dolphin, or the passion probe? Waterproof, wireless, there were lots of choices. 
I decided on The Rabbit. Primarily because it was featured on Sex in the City, but mostly because you can order a rabbit online and it comes in an unmarked box. So, the big day arrives, and the package shows up right as I'm about to rush out the door to go to work for an appointment. It took me all of one second to decide that I was going to be late for my appointment and go upstairs and try this thing out. So, I take it upstairs, I unwrap the box, I threw off my jacket, took off the bottom half of my clothes, and then jumped on the bed, navigated the controls, and I was ready to go. It took all of two minutes for me to come. It's nearly impossible to describe. I'm sure it feels different for everyone because I didn't feel tiny little explosions all over my body like Tara had said. Basically, as soon as I started using the device, a wash of just pure euphoria came over me. My mind went blank. I didn't need to think about all those buzzwords. And then the buildup kind of starts, and I let it go on for a little bit. And then I started to get increased pleasure. It feels like you're on a roller coaster. It feels like you're going up those high peaks and down those long dips. And instead of feeling all of that rush in your stomach, you feel it in your lady parts. And then it builds up. And instead of just releasing, like everybody says, and then you just, oh, you release and you like fall over and it's amazing. No. It's like those moments in movies where all of a sudden all the sound cuts out and it's just this squealing ringing in your ears and you can't think of anything else. And then... I felt these insane contractions. I mean, down there, not all over, but it was contracting. And that's when you feel the release. That's when I knew I had never felt this before. This has definitely never happened. And that was my first orgasm. And I was 29. After I have this mind-blowing revelation, I have a second really horrifying thought. And that is, holy crap, I am totally fucked. There is not a single man's penis that I know of that can rotate in two directions while a little bunny ear hums on my clitoris. This is never going to happen with a person. So I go for a quick round two. I run off to work. I leave work early because all I can do is think about this vibrator back at home. I get home. I go for round three and round four and round five. I was addicted. I was emotionally attached. Every girl that I encountered was advised that they needed to get the rabbit. I eventually realized after the honeymoon phase started to dwindle that my desire for this inanimate object was probably getting in the way of my sex life. I mean, I was still hooking up with guys, but it was nothing compared to hooking up with my vibrator, and I truly reached a point of ambivalence. Guys would say, oh, babe, I really want to get you off, and I would look at them and I'd be like, okay, well, is your dick hot pink? Uh, Does it have pearls that rotate at the base of it? Good luck with that. I just feel really bad for the first guy that actually is going to be able to get me off because if I get this emotionally attached to an inanimate object, the guy that actually makes me climax for the first time, he's just going to have to marry me. I'm taking off like a Russian rocket, double A battery packs in my pocket, fresh like a supermarket, don't make sense at all, well fuck it. I'm sorry about her phony males, but I love to see your ponytails in motion up and down while I take you to fucking town. Roll up coasting, sandwich toasting, getting up on stage in disco coasting. Posting Oh 
This is how we do it on Risk. Lucky Dragon's behind me now. All our music contributors are listed at risk-show.com. Well, some of our kindest fans have called our next teller a pubescent Rush Limbaugh who sounds like a monster truck show announcer. Talking, of course, about myself. Here I am at the Risk Live show that'll be back at 92Y Tribeca on June 9th, 2010. This is called Personal Best. When I was in the state, the comedy group I was in, and we were on TV, at the period that we were on TV, I started to actually get stopped on the street and asked to sign autographs about every other day. And of course, at first it was exciting, but eventually I would feel like my face had gone numb with self-consciousness when someone would approach me like this. And I'd find myself looking at this kid asking for the autograph and I'd sign it and I'd be thinking, this kid's probably disappointed really that they didn't run into one of the more popular members of the state. (laughs) Not the lame redhead one. And it would be like the best experiences that life had to offer were coming my way, but I would always find a way to walk away thinking, yeah, way to go, Kev, but, you know, other members of the state are doing better now. So I decided that I should take a little bit of a break from the group for a while. Maybe I should go off on vacation, take a cross-country trip, and get this comparative voice out of my head. So I bought a ticket for this magical mystery tour sort of bus trip that takes you from New York to San Francisco. Maybe you've heard of this thing. They have this bus. It's literally like from the 1930s. And they've redone it with bunk beds and freezers and pubic lice. (laughs) And the bus comfortably sits uh, about uh, 25 to 30. But the touring company had booked 40 people on this particular trip, so our trip was special that way. (laughs) There were two drivers, Bob and Brian, and these were very, very bearded men. (laughs) Uh, They may have been ZZ Top moonlighting. Now, they kind of left us in the dark about most of what would be going on during the trip, but they said about five times in the first three days they made the announcement that passengers should share their drugs with the drivers. (laughs) And there were a lot of non-English speakers and, you know, older people in the back of the bus, but I hung out with the young party kids in the front of the bus and we spent most of our time like listening to Elvis's Christmas album and singing along and shooting potatoes from industrial tubes and hanging out the windows taking turns to vomit. But I looked back recently and in one of my journal entries I can see myself at that same time saying way to go Kev. You came on this trip to clear your head. Oh, well, whatever. (laughs) Well, one day, well over a week into the trip, 
The bus stops in the middle of nowhere, this arid part of Colorado. And someone yells from inside a bus, there's a stream over there. So we all run out and we get up to it and we see that, yes, there is a stream, but it's a stream of very thick mud. Well, there was this German guy on the trip, about 6'5", very NBA-type build. We all called him Superman uh, because of his resemblance to Superman. (laughs) And he comes up to this little mud river here and starts taking off all his clothes. Now, I had written this guy off as like the shy, boring type, but now it was like nature had called. It was like he had come down from Mount Olympus as a statue and turned real, and he jumped in the nude into this mud river and popped up, completely covered in mud, and he said to all of us, das ist gut. (laughs) And within about 60 seconds, Everyone, old, young, foreign, American, male, female, was completely nude and covered in mud. It was like there was this magnetic energy about seeing this Superman dude in the nude doing this that just busted everyone's inhibitions to pieces. But now we needed showers. So Bob and Brian drove us to this campsite where they knew there'd be public showers. But as soon as we got there, Superman noticed another body of water. This was the Colorado River. Well, we got out and there it was. It was just like silver and sparkling and the water looked so cool. And most people were just running off to the public showers, but a few of us stayed behind to watch Superman running right on down there and diving in. And one of the girls said to Bob, the driver, um, are we allowed to swim in that? And Bob said, well, that guy is. So a couple of Superman's friends and some starry-eyed girls followed after him, and pretty soon there was this single-file line of five crossing the river like speedboats. And I was so impressed because these people, I mean, they were... They were having no trouble, even though it looked like these waves had a lot of momentum. They were just like, they were taking a lap at the Y. And some of them were girls. Not relevant, but it worked for me in my reasoning at the time. Because one of the reasons I'd come on the trip was to start taking life by the balls, to stop hesitating and start saying yes. Because hesitating was what was causing me so many problems in the state. So... I figured if ripping off all your clothes and jumping in mud is now so passe that anyone will do it, I want to be one of the special ones. And I made a very special decision. I walked on down the shore and lowered myself into the water. Now, I lowered myself rather than dove because didn't quite know how to dive. And I didn't quite know how to dive because 
I didn't know how to swim. <laughs> now, I had taken swimming lessons when I was like six and seven, and I had been in plenty of swimming pools, but I had never learned the kind of swimming where your arms and your torso and your legs are working together to propel yourself forward <laughs> through the water, the way that all these five people in front of me had clearly mastered, the kind of swimming that people call swimming. <laughs> so I kind of just splashed my way into the water and immediately I could see that this current was a force to be reckoned with. I was only one-fifth of the way across when I thought, fuck, I'm out of breath and my arms and legs are already tired. But I thought, no, 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 I, uh, just bump up the energy, get the adrenaline going. But the water kept socking me in the face with this left hook. And I was only about one-fourth of the way across when I thought, fuck, I'm veering with the water, with the current. I'm moving diagonally. So pretty soon I'm realizing that my feet are not really staying very well up, up in, you know, splashing area. They're just drifting further and further down. And sometimes the water is even covering my head. But even then, I was self-conscious. Even then, I'm thinking, will people notice, Kev? You're not doing this as well as the other five. Well, finally, I was one-third of the way across, and I thought to myself, I might not make it. Well, now, the person right in front of me was this lesbian from Texas named Kim. And a few days earlier, we'd become great friends because she had said to me, you may be the funniest white boy I know. And I really, you know, appreciated that. But of course, I thought, well, maybe she doesn't know many white boys. <laughs> Anyway, you'd think that if you were in the middle of a rushing water feeling like you were being smothered and dunked by water, that, you know, the kind of person you'd, one of the kinds of people you'd like to have in front of you would be a lesbian from Texas. So I started yelling, Kim, Kim. And she looked back and I was humiliated. I'm flailing around and I said, I don't know if I can make it. Well, she looked back again, and she laughed. She just went, oh, you. <laughs> it was the kind of reaction that you can't believe people are making in the first half of a horror movie, you know? <laughs> like the doctor saying, well, now this little girl's head is doing 360s on her shoulders, but... Let's not jump to conclusions. What she needs is a prescription for Ritalin. <laughs> Kim had done something like that. She had heard me say, more or less suggest I was drowning and decided, okay, let's just take that as a joke. <laughs> My legs and arms were getting heavier. My breath was getting shorter. And the distance from behind and in front, it was just too far away. But here was the most disturbing thing. I was as close to death as I'd ever been aware of being. I figured I had maybe at this point like a 50% chance of getting out of this alive, and that percentage seemed to be slipping. 
Now, this was time to stop hesitating. This was time to take life by the balls. But all I could bring myself to do was beat myself up. I found myself thinking, way to go, Kev. All the other non-swimmers knew better than to do this. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> Only now I'm saying, oh, well, whatever about the possible end of my life. Now, of all the ways to go, to have that running through your head and your heart in your final moments, I mean, that's one of the reasons we want so desperately for there to be an afterlife, so that we don't run the risk of coming to a total and complete end and just saying, oh, what a waste. Well, then it came to me. Now, it may be common sense, and it may be something that they teach in swimming lessons to everyone over the age of six. But to me, it was a eureka moment. I realized that you can keep your mouth above water much, much more easily if your stomach is facing the sky <laughs> rather than the deep. The backstroke. I turned myself over and started doing the backstroke and finally I felt like I could handle this. I was just taking these huge inhalations and exhalations and I was still kind of drifting diagonally and I was still being occasionally covered by water, but I felt like I had found something that would get me through. So when I finally got on shore, I'm like heaving for oxygen as if the world's running out of it. And Kim runs up to me and she says, oh my God, are you all right? And I said, I, I was serious when I said I didn't know if I could make it. And I said, oh my God, look at him. What is he doing? It was that moment that I noticed that Superman was crossing the river again to the opposite shore. I said, didn't he even want to take a rest? And she said, no, honey, the bus is leaving. We all got to go. And then I looked over and saw everyone waving and honking the horn, ready to go. And I said, oh my God, are you getting back in that? And she said, we have to. Then she had an idea. She said, look, there's a raft of Boy Scouts coming down the river there. I'm gonna jump in, start going across, and when I come up to them, I'm gonna tell them to come back here to pick you up. Well, it was quite a scene. <laughs> there's like six eight-year-old boys, all in adult-sized orange life jackets just kind of staring at me blankly the whole time. And their, you know, Scoutmaster was this kind of football coach kind of guy who did not think much of me. <laughs> he, uh, he was kind of using this as a teachable moment for the kids, almost as if I wasn't there. <laughs> he said, now look, boys. When you are gauging whether or not you can handle a certain stretch of water depending on how much swimming training you've had, you're going to have to use what I like to call common sense. <laughs> 
So I couldn't help but laugh to myself. But then he addressed the final part of his little lesson to this littler, more puny boy who kind of looked like him, and I knew right away he's talking to his son. He said, and don't necessarily think that just because some other guy is a better swimmer than you, that you got to go out there and try to best him because you got your own best things to be. Well, I still have that voice in my head. And I like it there. Thank you. Gently down the stream Merrily, 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 merrily Life is but a dream Row, row, row your boat Gently row, down row, the stream row, row, row your boat Gently down the stream Merrily, 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 merrily Life is but a dream Gently down the stream Merrily, 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 merrily Life is but a dream Gently down the stream Life is but a dream Gently this is Hive and Laura Lemmy, and you just heard Jan Turkenberg, who makes it plain that the words are life is but a dream, not life's a butter dream, like I grew up thinking. But I'm going to hold on to my interpretation because that's how different I am. And different is the subject of today's show, but it's also kind of the subject of our whole series because it's not NPR, folks. Risk will always be different. Sarah Barron's book, uh, People Are Unappealing, is a gigantic hit, and we love her. Here she is with You Say Penis, I Say Pinus. About five years ago, I, um, I went home for the holidays. I'm from suburban Chicago. And that process always sort of goes the same way for me, which is that prior to leaving, I anticipate that I'll be like very intellectually rigorous while I'm at home because there's like nothing to do and none of my friends from high school live there anymore. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be reading like a book a day. You know, like that's what I'll do and I'm going to like watch some foreign movies kind of a thing and then invariably I get there and actually all that happens is I watch literally like eight hours of television a day or like nine because my parents have cable and I don't have cable and it's amazing. So five years ago I was home and this was sort of like the the groove that I was in. Um, it was like day number four. I logged 36 hours of television and I felt myself sort of like reach a breaking point. I was like, I need to do something else. But I still couldn't like find the energy to read a book. So what I decided to do instead was to go up into my bedroom, which is my childhood bedroom, which my mother at the time had recently like converted into an office. And as a result, she'd put my entire life basically, into like six separate boxes. And I was like, what I'm going to do is go down like a little, little jaunt down memory lane is what I'm in the mood for. And so I was doing this. And that is when I discovered this document, which I now, uh, at the time of rediscovering it five years ago, I rechristened it the porn. <laughs> I'll explain why in a moment, but this is about to get very awkward. I'll tell you that much. Um, and it was one of those sort of objects wherein, like, when I saw it for the first time, I, and I hadn't seen it at, like, in like 14 years was the last time we were face to face. 
I knew immediately what it was. Like I knew what I was going to find when I opened the first page. But at the same time, I had completely repressed the experience of writing it. And here's why. Back it up to 1991, okay? I'm 11 years old, it's April, there's like a spring breeze in the air. I'm going to be turning 12 in like a month and I am assaulted, vigorously assaulted by puberty. Um, bad, bad situation. And I was one of those people, like it happened in a day. Like I went to bed and I was like kind of a little fat with some funny hair, but basically cute. And then I woke up the next day and I looked like a man, like a fat man. And more to the point, I was feeling some new feelings in my lower region, okay? There was some new things. And um, I'm an inquisitive kind of girl, you know? So I've done a little investigative reporting on the matter and apparently puberty kind of universal. Right? Like, I'm not the only one who felt the feelings for the first time. I was like, that's different. But, you know, as an adult, you like have these conversations with people and you're like, oh, remember? Like, what did you do? Or like, how did you handle it? Or whatever. And most people, like the very intuitive people, sort of like look at their hand and are like, I wonder what I can do about the feeling. Or, uh, you know, something happens with like a faucet for a girl one day. Or what else? What else have people said? Like, uh, I knew someone who would like play doctor with a friend or something when she was like 12 years old. Or maybe it's not that overwhelming for you and you end up like waiting until you lose your virginity and like that's the first time that something happens or whatever. What I decided to do, I decided the most effective way of handling my new feel, I don't know why I need to keep doing this. <laughs> but I think you're pretty aroused by it, sir. Um, anyway, I decided the most effective course of action would be to write a full length, by which I mean 50 page, pornographic screenplay. <laughs> I was like, that's the thing for me. And as to why, um, I think what it's, uh, this took me years of therapy to figure out, even though it's completely obvious that this was the rationale. My mother used to take my little brother and I to the library. And I discovered one day, like the romance novel, probably just because I was like, that is a pretty cover with that off the shoulder top that woman has on. <laughs> and so I started opening it and I was reading it. And I was like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever read in my life and like I really liked the feeling that the story gave me but I knew I was smart enough to know that there was something private about what I was feeling so when my mother was like anything that you want to check out I was like no and I would be like let's go back to the library let's go back to the library and so I think what was going on is I was like if I write one I'll just have it and it can be like all sex all the time and that'll be amazing and I can like read it in bed and it still didn't occur to me like masturbation still years away but I just thought like I would read and have an orgasm or something, which has happened. No. Um, anyway, so, uh, so this is where the inspiration comes from. But when I actually like decide one afternoon to like put pen to paper, the idea of the full length novel seems a little daunting. And I'm like, so I'll go with the screenplay. So that's what I did. Like all great works of literature, I had to select a title. The porn is what I call it now, because I talk about it all the time, because it's my creative zenith, which is depressing, but that is the fact of the matter. Um, what I called it when I was 11 years old was Rosewood Beach. <laughs> Um, and there is that P.S. I know. Uh, I'm like I said, I'm from uh, suburban Chicago. I lived near like Lake Michigan, and there was a beach called Rosewood Beach. And nothing particularly sexy ever happened to me there. But I think I thought maybe one day. <laughs> 
didn't happen anyway. Um, there is also then on the first page there's a cast list, and I had four lead actors, and they, these roles were to be played by the following human beings. Number one, Tom Cruise, because he's not a homosexual. <laughs> by which I mean, yes, he is. But anyway, that's not the point. Number two, Christy Brinkley. <laughs> Icon of female sexuality. Number three, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> and number four, Paula Abdul. <laughs> What I'm trying to communicate is that in 1991, no four human beings seemed like they were bursting with more sexuality than these four people. So I set up a 50 page long situation so they could fuck each other over and over and over and over. So that is what I did. So I find this thing 14 years later, by which point I have had sex. Thank you very much. So I'm a little bit more aware of how things go, which I wasn't when I was 11. So it's like riddled with all these very interesting things. Number one, um, which I hope you find amusing instead of grotesque and self-involved to me, that I think they're interesting. I hope you do too. So um, the first is that it's like super dirty, but I'm 11, so I'm still into like bubble letters and like I'm going to dot my eye with little hearts, like that kind of thing. My spelling is very bad, but it's consistent. So I often reference boobs. These are some, small ones, but there they are, anyway. But I spell them bobs, sometimes bobbies. Um, I do mention quite often, I do mention the penis and the vagina, because I'm a clinical kind of gal. But um, I consistently spell it pinus and vaginia. And I'm very specific in terms of my verbs. Like I have some workhorse verbs in this, and they are hump and French. So like everyone is humping and then they're Frenching and they're humping and they're Frenching and I'm very particular as well with my adverbs. You hump wildly and you French violently sometimes incredibly. Sometimes you might hump or French incredibly. So anyway, uh, a couple other factors that figure in. The first is that all the male characters wear exclusively umbros. <laughs> because I thought they were hot, and specifically they had to be either neon blue or black, because to me at the age of 11 that said, I'm a man. <laughs> My black umbros mean I am a man, and all the girls wear brassiers. I don't say bra, it's, a con it's constantly a brassier, and biker shorts, and what occurred to me today as I was thinking about this presentation this evening, is I was like, you know what I meant? I hope this does something for you. I thought it was kind of weird. What I meant by biker shorts were hot pants. <laughs> so the dudes are always in the umbros and the girls are always in hot pants and brassiers. Um, and then they hump each other with pinuses violently. So anyway, um, lastly, I thought, the, I thought that like the thing that you, like one of the key components to sex, and by key component I mean like it couldn't happen without it, and this is sort of romantic, was music. You could never have sex without music. But the music had to be specific. You could not have sex unless Michael Bolton's music was playing. <laughs> so as I said, it's 50 pages and it's just like sex, 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 sex. 
And so every four pages, it's like, hold on, let me put on Michael Bolton. Hold on, let me put on Michael Bolton. <laughs> Lastly, the most dramatic misconception was this. I am... Um, I was too young, I was, some other people might have been, but I was too young to really grasp the concept of the orgasm. I did not, I did not know. I hadn't had one, uh, still waiting. Um, I just didn't know <laughs> what it was. But the thing is, is I knew about the new feelings, so I did intuit ultimately that like, the idea of the build. I got that there was a build and then I kind of got it that at some point like something, but I didn't know what the something was. And so in my porn, at the climactic moments, all the characters just pee. <laughs> like they just fucking urinate everywhere. Now, lest you think I wouldn't give all that build up and give you a direct quote, you are wrong. I'm going to, and I'm letting you know right now, it's very filthy. You're going to wonder if I was troubled, but I assure you I was just going through puberty. Hopefully that will make you find this funny instead of completely disgusting. P.S. Imagine these actions unfolding between Paula Abdul and Kirk Cameron. <laughs> We start wildly humping while we roll over and we French. We're still humping, incredibly. I want you to realize this is not an average hump. It's really pushing into each other. Then I take his pinus and I rub my face in it. In the middle, this is very weird. In the middle of hotly, very into the adverbs, hotly and violently shoving our excited genitals together. Since we were both at our peak of heat, I was so excited, I peed on him. We both smiled slyly. And he said, Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I cleaned it all up with the help of my bobbies. <laughs> so that goes on kind of verbatim for 50 pages. <laughs> Scenes change. It's like the party, the living room, the steaming bearskin rug, the oriental rug. <laughs> and then the very last scene is between Christy Brinkley, whose character name was Jenny Wilkinson, by the way. And I have her having sex with a rock star named Jim Henley. <laughs> um, in an arena and what's very funny is that like the build up to this last scene is completely devoid of realism right like everyone's super hot acrobatic everyone's having sex like 17 times a day people are urinating it's like crazy but then the very last scene after 50 pages like the last page and a half I have the feet, they're, they're like doing it and doing it and doing it. And he urinates, and we know what that means. And she doesn't 
and we know what that means. And she like gets up and he's like, well, that was good. She's like, maybe for you. And she storms angrily away. And I find it so amazingly intuitive and incredibly depressing that that was like the one piece that I nailed. <laughs> I'm Sarah Barron, this is The Porn. Thank you guys very much. Risk, 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 oh risk, oh risk, oh risk, oh risk, 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 Hey, my name is So Say the Elemental Wizard. I am the level 27 hip hop spellcaster. I first moved out to New York City in 2003. As all rappers did, I would go to the hip-hop open mics and try to spit a couple bars, see what happened. I noticed that I stuck out a little bit from the other rappers, though. As far as I could tell, I was the only gay one. It was uh, not a big deal at first. I would just be goofy old, so say, the elemental wizard from New Hampshire, just cracking jokes and stuff. But the thing about art is that it's supposed to be expressing who you are. The more I rapped about everything except for my homosexuality, I just felt that I was hiding the most important part of myself. And it got to the point where I would do a really fun show and people would really enjoy it. And then the moment that I left the open mic, I would just burst into tears. I couldn't stand having this big secret. So finally I decided I would tell people the truth and I would tell them on stage. The open mic was called End of the Week and it took place every Sunday at the Pyramid Club. And the people who rap there, they are all hungry MCs. They get up on stage, they talk about how great they are, how much you suck. They talk a lot about violence, selling drugs, and I definitely, I respect that, but I can't get up on stage and rap about that stuff because people would know that it was phony. So finally I realized that the things that I can rap about and go hard at is how gay I am. But to be honest, I wasn't ready to just hit the stage and be like, super gay man. So I decided one night I would just do a song and mention it a little bit, like one line, I happened to be like, I like dudes. And I said it, but I felt like the message wasn't really sinking in. Like maybe they missed that one line. So I was like, all right, I will make you guys listen. So it got more and more intense. And I would, you know, say two lines, or I would even say, turn around, it's time to do it rough. And people would get a little bit on edge. But I still felt like they weren't really getting it. As I went home that night, I'd realized I have to step up my game the next time I go to the open mic. I happened to have this friend who was an expert in American Sign Language, so I taught him an entire song that I wrote that was called Sucking Dick. 
and I decided we were gonna do this. So the night when I was finally gonna do my big coup de gras, we were actually at a different location. It was called Raw. And it was much larger than the previous venue. And the stage was twice as large. And the crowd went back. It was really quite an interesting scene there. I was one of the few white people at the open mic. And not only that, I was one of the few white people who didn't act like he was black. So they were all being mad hard. People were wearing wife beaters, people had their chains on, they had really cool outfits. I was always rocking a t-shirt and jeans, or maybe a button-up shirt. I couldn't quite pull off the same tough guy look. I did what I could. So I got up on stage, and the first verse, it's just like a regular hip-hop thugged-out track, where I'm doing the same I'm-so-tough stuff. And people were feeling it, people were cheering it a few lines, but then when it hits the chorus, that's when everything fell apart. You know, I go, sucking dick, sucking dick, sucking dick. What? People started screaming, and the sign language guy next to me, he's doing this thing where you put your tongue into your cheek, like you have a lollipop in your mouth or something. It was, uh, it was a great visual. People had no idea what was going on. This one guy even jumped up on stage. He was like, look man, you can't do this song anymore. And he looked angry, but he also just looked really confused. Like, almost like this was a dream. Was this even happening? Like, I wasn't sure if he wanted to hit me or if he just wanted to ask me to pinch him. And I felt really lucky because the MCs, the hosts of the show were really supportive. They said, he, he did his time. He waited in line. He paid admission. He gets to do his five minute song. So let him take the stage. And they handed me the mic back. So after the guy hands me back the mic and I start rapping the second verse, I'm like, all right, it's really happening now. This is the moment. So I start off, hey, yo, I suck mad dick like every day. Everybody looks at me like he better be gay. I'll suck you off right now, so never delay. And I don't care if you're straight. I like it better that way. And at this point, everyone's paying attention. Anyone who didn't know who I was before definitely will not forget So Say at this point. So I was looking at the crowd. I was loving it. I didn't love that I had to go to such extreme measures, but I love the fact that finally I was really getting five minutes out of my five minutes worth of stage time. And no longer were people just, you know, using this as a moment to get their drinks because it was just another random white guy. So here I was, I did the second verse, I did the third verse, and this song is really meant to punish the crowd. It's four verses long, and people were getting antsy, even if it wasn't about sucking dick. They were like, how long does this song go? And for the fourth verse, I made it about actual people in the crowd at that very show. And I called out all these people who I knew, people who I was friends with, People who would never see me in the same light. Hey, yo, I suck his 
suck your dick. I'll suck everybody. I'll never forfeit. I'll suck off Greg. I'll suck off Thomas. I'll suck John hard. This much I promise. I'll suck off twins like the carbon copies. I'll suck a neat freak till he's hard and sloppy. I'll suck a bay waiter. I'll suck a gay hater. I'll suck a day trader as long as he pays later. And then that was when the hosts shut off the music and said, look, you can do your song, but you can't start calling out members of the audience and saying that you're sucking their dicks. And I was really pissed, but I figured I had already done three full verses, so it was good to quit while you're in the lead. But I, I got off the stage, and I kept watching a few more tracks, and then I started looking around, and I realized there were some daggers in people's eyes, but it's definitely time to get out of there. But I will say, there were a couple other people in the audience who I was really good friends with, and they actually came up to me and said, Yo, so say, I got your back, man. Anyone steps to you, I won't let it happen. They said, I didn't like all that gay sex stuff. But I will say, you definitely kept it real. And hip-hop is all about keeping it real. So you did your thing. What's up? Hey, what's up? We have different qualities which help to define who we are, who we are, who we are. In this song, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself, who I am, who I am. Yo, 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 come on. I We heard Labia Rogers right before we heard Sose, and that's S-O-C-E, the Elemental Wizard. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our story producer is David Crabb. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our story editors are Andy Croner and Jeff Mersel. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our associate producers are Madison Perry, Nina Moses, and Catherine Green. And don't forget what the New Guineans say about Risk. To settle a dispute, compare yams. Janet, and I know you can't stand it. I'll suck your dick so hard I'll pull your urine out. Yeah, I'm so straight acting that I'm putting her in doubt. The girl wants to sleep with me, and I can fuck her easily, but I.
would rather wanna do the bridge You grab a piece of cheese and eat a cold cut I never hold sluts, though I may fantasize I'd rather go Dutch Suck on my dick, squeeze on my ass Let your sperm go loose, freedom at last I love America, I love the Middle East Can't we all just maybe get a little peace? I'll fuck with ancient Greece, give me some payment please So I'll keep making beats and taking peeks at Shaley Jeeves I'll do you well, watching Grand Mississippi show late And that's what happens when you're fucking with so sad oh, hey.